Hi, everybody. This is Brian Williams. You're listening to Tobin Tonight. Welcome to another episode here of Tobin Tonight, our first episode of 2022. I am joined here by Brian Williams, the great Brian Williams. Brian, I'm in Newfoundland. I wanted to know, have you ever been to Newfoundland? Well, as a matter of fact, I've been to Newfoundland uh, several times. I know you went to Memorial University, and I know it's up on the hill if you're in downtown St. John's when you look up at it. Uh, I first went to Newfoundland to interview uh, the great curler Brad Gushu after his uh, gold medal at the Olympics. The last time I went to Newfoundland was with the Grey Cup with Jeff Hunt, who owns the Ottawa Red Blacks. Jeff was in high school, uh, Brian, up in Labrador City. And Jerry Organ, then with the old Ottawa Rough Riders, came to speak. He didn't know anything about football, but uh, he uh, he was intrigued, that's for sure. His dad was a Mountie in uh, Newfoundland, and again, Jeff Hunt was born in Newfoundland. So the family eventually ended up at Ottawa. He opened a very successful business, uh, sold the business, uh, got the Ottawa Red Blacks going. His football came back to the capital, re, uh, revamped the stadium in Ottawa. And when they won the Grey Cup, he wanted to take one of the oldest, if not the oldest, sport trophies in all of North America to the youngest province. Of course, uh, Newfoundland did not join Canada until uh, 1949. And so we flew from Toronto to the airport just outside Corner Brook. And we had the Grey Cup. We had a gathering in Corner Brook. Then we went up to Labrador City. We went to the high school where Jeff Hunt first heard about football and brought the Grey Cup. It was absolutely outstanding. The people were great. They were warm. They were friendly. We then went down to St. John's, went into the legislature. Uh, it's the first time the Grey Cup, uh, was the first time it had been in Newfoundland, so obviously the first time it was in the legislature. And uh, just had a great time. Uh, I love the province. What a great place to visit. It'd be a great place to live. Boy, the best lobster rolls I've ever had. Yeah, you, you had mentioned prior <laughs> that it was, uh, it was Gushu, wasn't it, that gave you kind of the recommendation for the lobsters? No, he, uh, Brad, I think, I can't remember, this has been many years ago, but I believe he recommended a place to get cod There, Oh, that's uh, it, yeah. To, you'll, you'll have to find yeah. out when you, <laughs> when you talk to, uh, to Brad, but I have a great love for Newfoundland. I, I want to ask you, because now we kind of touched base with Newfoundland, but like, I've asked this to many people who have come here. Have you ever got screeched in? No, I've, I don't think I've been screeched in, to be honest. Uh, okay, good. So, like, so no, no kissing the cod, no kiss. I've kissed, uh, I've poems. kissed the cod, and uh, and uh, I'm a great dog lover. So there's the statue of the uh, of the dogs just off the main drag there in uh, in uh, St. John's. But uh, no, I've uh, I've kissed the cod, and I know that's being screeched in. But I was with uh, Paul Harrington, one of our producers, brilliant producer uh, at the time, and uh, who's uh, now semi-retired as I am. And um, he's a Newfoundland, born and raised in Newfoundland. So uh, I was learning from him as I traveled about. Yeah, pe- people are bittersweet on kissing the cod. Like we've had people come on that they're like they're afraid to tell a Newfoundlander that they didn't like kissing the cod. I'm like, listen, <laughs> if someone told me in another province that this is the ritual, like I had to kiss them like a moose's uh, lips or something, I'd be like, I would totally say I did not enjoy that. That was the least part of the trip I enjoyed. And I feel like they'd understand. Yeah, but it's not a live cod. And uh, no, no, so that's, that's true. you know, it'd be like uh, you wouldn't be kissing dead moose, I can tell you that. But uh, no, that, that's, they're, they're, that's they're a little fair. bigger than the cod, I gotta tell you, Brian. And uh, yeah, but uh, no, I, uh, I I loved my visits there and uh, really enjoyed it. Now, obviously, Brian, you've gone through like this is, I believe, when I'm doing a little prior history, I tell people I know a little bit about them, but not everything because obviously it's their episode, but like right. 50 years. Uh, 50 year career in like broadcasting like that's that's crazy to me how do you how do you get up every day and just be like yes this is what i'm doing and i love to do it because i feel like after year 10 i'd be like i want to do something different i loved uh every minute of the 50 years it was september of 1970 i had come back from university i went to university at aquinas college in grand rapids michigan and came home to canada and came to chum and was hired by Dick Smythe, the late Dick Smythe, who was uh, prior to that the news director at CKLW, a big station in Windsor, Ontario, that most people thought was from Detroit. It was known as the Big Eight. It was one of the number one rock stations in all of North America. But uh, 
Dick hired me to do the news at Chum in September of 1970. I was there for three years and then went up to CFRB in Toronto, just up the street, the big good music station. Worked for Bill Stevenson along with Dave Hodge, who's a very good friend. I was in Dave's wedding. He was in mine. Bill Stevenson uh, has passed away. After a year at uh, CFRB, I went to CBC, was there for 32 years, for a number of years. Uh, in the 70s, I did the local sports in Toronto at, uh, at 6 o'clock and then uh, 6 and 11 on Thursday and Friday or maybe Monday and Tuesday. I can't remember the exact days as time flies, but uh, was at CBC for 32 years. And then uh, in 2006, I uh, went over to CTV, TSN, to do both Vancouver and London, and then, of course, officially retired last uh, December. So it was 50 years. And uh, no, I never looked on it as, as a long time. I just looked on it as uh, as, a, as a fun time, as a time I enjoyed, as a time I learned, as a time I met great people, traveled the world, did Olympics. I'm realizing, or I realize now how fortunate I am. People say to me, Brian, they say, well, what are you doing retiring? I know they give you this stuff. They probably tell everyone, you don't look 75. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, yeah. you can still do it. You can still spew out the dates and still tell the stories. But, you know, 50 years seem to be the right time. I am 75. I have five grandchildren. And the oldest is a boy, 23. The youngest is uh, another little boy. He is two. I have a four-year-old grandson, an 11-year-old granddaughter, and also a 19-year-old grandson. So uh, my wife, Geraldine, and I have a lot to do. Uh, I'm enjoying retirement. It just seemed like the right time. But when people tell me, you know, maybe, you know, you could have stayed, you could have done more. Um, I will tell you this. When I went over to Hamilton on December the 12th, uh, they did a very nice video tribute. I'm very grateful to TSN and Paul Harrington for. And when I went over to the Grey Cup game, that's where it was done in the pregame show with James Duffy hosting at, uh, at the Grey Cup in Hamilton, I received a call. And I mean, you know, your listeners should think about this very, very carefully. I received a call from a friend out west who said, Brian, you're retiring in good health. And I said, well, I hope it's not too early. And they said, oh, it's not a matter of early or late. He said, he told me he had a chance to retire several years ago, was talked into staying for another couple of years, got very, very sick, Parkinson's, a bad case of Parkinson's, and is now, for the most part, confined to bed. So he said, you're retiring in good health. And you're retiring when you're still able to do things. Uh, we had the uh, four-year-old grandson here yesterday. Man, if you got to be in good shape, it's a good thing I go to the gym. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you know, it was, it's the right time, Brian. I, uh, you know, 50 years in this business is a long time, but I've enjoyed uh, uh, working in this business. I never looked on it like it was a job. I was. Uh, I was fortunate to to do what I loved. And like, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like, was it this year or like, was it a few years prior that you were kind of contemplating this? Like, cause it feels like you have this all kind of like mapped out or you knew where you were going, but like, tell me a little bit through the process. Like, was there a certain turning point where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm just done. I just want to, you know, relax. My dad died at just under 102 several years ago. Oh, wow. And he was a doctor, um, a physician, a rural physician in British Columbia. I went to grades uh, one to five in Invermere, a little town about two hours west of Banff in eastern BC. Then he went into administration. He went to Yale University in Connecticut. So well, he was at Yale. I did grade six and seven in New Haven. Can remember listening to Don Larson's perfect game for the New York Yankees in a radio park somewhere at a friend's house in Connecticut. After Connecticut, I went to grade eight in Edmonton, where he was medical director of Royal Alexandra Hospital, and then I went to high school in Hamilton, uh, where he was medical director of St. Joe's, and uh, he moved to the states. And I went to university in uh, at Aquinas in Michigan, but uh, came back to uh, to uh, Ontario, back to Canada. Uh, in 1970. And as I say, that's where I started at Chum. But my dad, when he was 100, I went out to visit him in Victoria. And I said, would you do anything different in your life? He said, yes, I would have retired earlier. He said, don't make the mistake of working too long. And God forbid you get sick or get in an accident, and you don't have time to enjoy what you've worked for all your life, and that is your family, their well-being. You don't have time to watch them grow. You don't have time to enjoy them. So I always remembered that. And a number of years ago, I went to TSN, and I said, can I extend my contract a year or two? And they said, sure. Oh, 
why? <laughs> and uh, they would have extended longer. I said, well, because um, I want to work 50 years. I started in 1970 and they said 50 years. And uh, what I told them on that day was when Dick Smythe, who hired me at Chum Radio in Toronto in September of 1970, I've got the letter here that uh, that he wrote. If he'd said to me, you're going to work for 50 years in this business, I'd say work for 50 years. Man, I just want to be alive for another 50 years. So uh, I am fortunate. I wouldn't say I planned it. I, I guess I started thinking about it uh, uh, several many years ago, but uh, you know, there was a day when working to 65 was an accomplishment. I've worked to uh, until the age of 75. Uh, I was 75 last summer, and um, so you know, it just uh, seemed the right time, and I'm enjoying it, and I'm enjoying being with my family. And I want to ask you because I know, like every person at some point in their life, finds what their interest or passion is. Like I know when I was at maybe. Memorial University down here. I was like maybe 15 or 16 and I wanted to get into comedy and I wanted to be in like Saturday Night Live. I was never into news, but then I eventually kind of got into sports broadcasting and then I went down that road of, okay, let's go to radio broadcasting, sports broadcasting, get that career going. And like for me, I've applied places, but just never got my foot in the door. But like, I kind of guess what kept me going or kind of interested in sports is like, Obviously, you've called many Olympics, but I remember 2010 for me was the one that kind of stuck in my mind because it was in our home country and there were so many memorable moments of that. But I don't know how many people walk up to you on a daily basis and tell you, you know, the closing of that, the themes, like the music that's playing, you basically bring it all together of saying like, you know, people would scoff and say, how Canadian? And now we look back and say exactly like how Canadian because of the moments like to me, that kind of really got me into the sports broadcasting. So I'm like, I'm watching Brian Williams. He's doing a killer job doing this. And if I could do something just half as good as that, I'd consider that be great. But like, do you get people that come up to you and mention these moments to you? I, you know, I'm very honored when they do. People stop me and they say, you know, at the end of the Vancouver Olympics, it changed this country. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, Brian. And because it changed it in a very positive way. But, um, no, I don't. Uh, I started, I wanted to be in broadcasting from when I was 10 or 11 years old. I wanted to be a sportscaster all my life. I majored in history and political science uh, at university at Aquinas College in Michigan, but there was a campus radio station <laughs> that I worked at part time. And uh, when I was in high school, I used to listen to the sports every night, every day and watch it. I've I've wanted to do it since I was 10 or 11 years old. And my dad was a doctor, and I remember a guidance counselor saying to him once, your son, he wants to be a sportscaster. Why doesn't he do something that's realistic? And my dad yeah. says, if that's what he wants to do, then I encourage him to do it. My only advice is if you're going to do it, work hard at it and be a good one. And so uh, he supported me in that. And uh, I've been fortunate that I've wanted to uh, be a sportscaster since I was 10 or 11 years old. So that's over uh, – over 60 years ago. And I'll tell you a funny story. I'm working for Chum in Toronto, which was uh, uh, the number one rock station in Canada and a huge station with people like Jungle Jane Nelson, uh, Peter Dickens. Anyhow, I'm working for Chum. I'm in the news department and uh, Dick Smythe, the legendary news director, used to send me out for stories. So one day he says, I'm sending you down to City Hall to get a story on this, this, and this. And then as I'm going towards the door, he yelled out in front of the whole newsroom. And Williams... If you come back with a damn sports angle as you do all the time, I'm going to wring your neck. And they send me out to. I was hired as a newsman, and uh, I was doing news stories and loved the news, but always wanted the sports angle. So it's something uh, I've always wanted to do, and uh, I continue to enjoy today. I'm not doing it right now, but uh, I still watch uh, watch sports and watch the business and find out how the business is evolving, as all businesses do. Now, I, I know you said that you, you weren't doing it anymore, but like, obviously, I want to know, like, kind of like your kind of intake, because we've got 2022 coming around the, the corner there. But like, you know, NHL players aren't going over. And, you know, obviously, with Beijing COVID situation, like, do you feel like it's still going to be like an Olympic atmosphere, even though there's like not as much crowd, you're not getting the best for the men's side, at least? I will say this. Uh, I don't know what the atmosphere will be like, but prior to Tokyo, I've always maintained 
um, you know, going back to the beginning of my career, that the Olympics are about the athletes and not the fat cats in the International Olympic Committee that run the games <laughs> or the politicians. It's about the athletes. And prior to Tokyo, and this answers your question about Beijing, prior to Tokyo, I was called to do a television interview. And they said uh, it was the day of the opening ceremony. And they said, you know, we'd like to get your idea because I know you think it was a bad idea having the games in Tokyo. I turned it down because, uh, yes, three, four months before Tokyo, I was saying, no, they shouldn't be there. Instead of holding them uh, what they should have done, they should have moved them 24, moved Paris in 24 to 28. They could use the extra time. Um, then move 28 London or Los Angeles to 32 because it's the 100th anniversary of the first games in Los Angeles in 1932. But I was not going to say the Olympics shouldn't be in Tokyo the day they were opening because it's about the athletes yeah. and the young men and women have trained. They've given up so much, especially in these days of COVID. I'm not going to go on and criticize what they're doing over there. When they're there, it's all about them and all about their glory. And, uh, you know, we saw that in the decathlon. We saw it in the sprints. We saw it in so many events, the, uh, the women's swimming. So, uh, you know, my feeling on 22 is that Beijing was not the first choice. Two cities late in the bidding uh, have great Olympic backgrounds, and their countries are winter sports powers. Norway and Germany, Oslo, Norway, and Munich, Germany were uh, were two of the late bidders, but uh, they said they were simply too expensive. Oslo hosted the games in 1952 when the Edmonton Mercuries, those days uh, Canada was represented not by the NHL, but by senior hockey teams, and the Edmonton Mercuries won the gold medal. That was the last gold medal, Brian, in hockey for Canada until 50 years later, 2002, when the Gretzky-led team won the gold medal in Salt Lake City. So, you know, the um, I, I, I just I, I, and then I look at Munich and, of course, Munich is uh, near the three greatest ski races or ski runs in the world are Kitzbühel, uh, Austria. Wengen, uh, Switzerland is the longest and, and widest. Kitzbühel is uh, the steepest and most dangerous. And Garmisch-Partenkirchen, Germany. And Garmisch-Partenkirchen is not far from Munich. So they they they, they bowed out. It was too expensive. And uh, the games then went to uh, to Beijing. But uh, as the athletes are going to be there in a couple of weeks, I'm not going to say they should or shouldn't go. I want to talk about the athletes because it's now about the athletes. And ladies and gentlemen, remember, the Olympics are not about the fat cats running them or the politicians. They're about the athletes. Yeah, I, I just think it's interesting because obviously you have like NHL players that voice their concerns and like it's their right to do so. Like there's. Marshawn and Stamkos have said like you know what about if we don't get to go to the next one because you know Team Canada might not look at us or we're too old so I get that but like I guess there's a part of me obviously that always enjoys the Olympics regardless who's wearing you know our colors but you know seeing someone like Owen Powers or a few from the World Juniors getting the chance to go before they even get an NHL game because that's kind of how this works I'm like that is kind of intriguing to me because it's like it kind of brings back the whole Olympic atmosphere of it's not about the pros, it's about the amateurs per se. Well, it's interesting you say that because look, this is 2022. The Olympics, when they were reborn in 1896 at the Stadium of Marble, I've been to that stadium in Athens, Greece. It was best on best, but it was all amateur. In the late, teen, yeah. late 1800s, early 1900s, you could have best on best, but you had to have amateur. This is 2022. Even if you go back several years, people want to see the best. The Olympics is no longer just an amateur event. And, it, and you know, people talk about the NHL and they talk about the NBA. But remember, would you have wanted to watch the men's 100 meters in 2012 in London, England, without Usain Bolt, the great Jamaican sprinter? Usain Bolt was probably making many millions more than many of the pro athletes in hockey or even even basketball and um you know yes there are some amateurs today but so many of the uh, and more power to them and god bless them this is their moment but uh so many of the uh, quote unquote amateurs or athletes that people think are amateur are actually making big money so in the year 2022 which we're in people want to see best on best and when it comes to hockey they want to see the nhl playing uh, you know, I can, you're 
probably not old enough, but I can remember back decades when we used to say, boy, the Russians, this is prior to the 72 Summit Series, which had nothing to do with the Olympics, but we used to say, you know, the Russians, Soviets, they get houses, they get cars, they don't have to work, they just play hockey, they're in fact, they're in fact uh, professional, yet Canada can't send our best hockey players. That's why we didn't win a gold medal from 1952 until uh, 2002 in Salt Lake City. So uh, I believe the Olympics are about best on best. Uh, many of the athletes are amateur, but if they're professional, people in this day and age want to see best on best. No, I, I agree because it just brings out like obviously, you know, for people that are on the Internet or for people who, you know, do it for a living it's almost like okay well if you take the best from canada compared to the best of russia like who has the better hockey team and then you don't really get that when you know if the nhl saying no we're not sending it because in my mind now people can argue but i'm like i look at it and say like russia has the khl sweden has its own elite league i believe germany has one as well so we're sending kind of like our junior players or you know our senior players at best and they're still having like you know, top tier talent from the KHL getting represented. Yeah, yeah, they do in, in Russia, but uh, the Swedes uh, that are playing in the NHL, the best Swedes, uh, they don't yeah. get to go to the uh, to the Olympics. Neither do uh, some of the best Russians, i.e., the star of the Washington Capitals. But the the point that my point is that uh, I love the Olympics. They're about best on best. Yes, there are many true amateurs, but there are also many professionals beyond just NBA and NHL players. So as far as Beijing goes, this is a very difficult time with the COVID. Uh, you know, it's not just what they're going to encounter there. It's the preparation. Uh, some of the sports have not had, you know, adequate uh, number of national championships. So there there have been a lot of hardships. And the the athletes that go have struggled through and uh, beaten those hardships. So uh, I don't think it's up to us to say that the game shouldn't go or, sh or, you know, say something bad about the games when the athletes are there and the games are about the athletes. I, I want to ask you, because obviously you've covered many Olympics, both summer and winter. Uh, now, if you had to pick a favorite, like Olympic or like an Olympic memory or moment, what would it be? Now, if you give me, Brian, the answer of they're all great, I loved them all, I'm going to be like, you are lying. No, <laughs> no, there's some, some stand out. Um, I remember um, my first opening ceremony in Montreal. I've done 14 Olympics. Uh, I've not hosted 14. I did weightlifting in Montreal in 1976, but I was in the stadium. And uh, to see the pageantry and the excitement on the faces of the athletes uh, uh, was was truly something special. Um, you know, every games has has an appeal. Um, Seoul in 1988, people all remember the Ben Johnson story and how I had to announce to the world that Ben had tested positive. But one of the real moving moments for me occurred in the opening ceremonies. What happened was we're in this giant stadium. And the, and the Olympic flame comes in, and it's carried by an old man, a very old man, a much older man. And I could look around, see people crying. The Korean broadcasters had tears in their eyes. The story was that in 1936, at Hitler's Games in Berlin, he won the marathon, this uh, South Korean runner did. And But he had to accept it on behalf of Japan, the gold medal, and listen to the Japanese national anthem, because at the time, Japan was occupying South Korea. So when he came into the stadium for his Olympic moment with the flame, uh, the whole stadium was in tears. It is something I will never, ever, ever forget. I'm a political, you know, I wanted to be a broadcaster all my life, but I'm a history and political science major. Albertville in 92 was just after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And here's all these new countries coming in for the first time on the world stage, carrying their flags, their national flags. They weren't marching for the Soviet Union. They were marching for their newly independent countries. And believe me, that was uh, that was quite emotional. Vancouver, you want a, a standout Olympics? No question it's Vancouver. You want me to pick one? The reason being that uh, Canada was the only country, Brian, 1976 Montreal, 1988 Calgary to host two gold or to host two Olympics and not win a gold medal on 
Canadian soil. Liz Manley and Brian Orser had silver in uh, Calgary, and of course, uh, there was the high jumping gold medal uh, in uh, in their, uh, silver medal, I should say, in Montreal. So Canada hosts two Olympics, doesn't win a gold medal. Big question going into Vancouver was who will win? Who will win it? Well, it was on a Sunday evening, the first Sunday of the Games, two or three days in. Alex Bilodeau, the freestyle skier from Quebec, won the first gold medal on Canadian soil by a Canadian. And little did we realize, we knew there was a different attitude going into Vancouver because of owned the podium and they no longer just wanted to show up, as one athlete told me, we were going to win. But that was the first gold, but we had no idea what was coming. The avalanche started. There was just a flood of gold medals, ending with gold medal number 14, when Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal, as described by Chris Cuthbert on CTV at the time. That was the 14th gold medal, the most gold by any country, not just a host country, at the Winter Olympics at the time. So uh, Vancouver was very special. And as we left Vancouver, I can remember the sign-off where I said, you know, right now, on this very day, on this Sunday, a sea of red and white is flowing from coast to coast to coast in our country. There is a new pride, a new respect for our history, our traditions. And we're now realizing, you know, there's nothing wrong with being the best. Just, uh, you know, don't uh, don't uh, lord it over people. Stand up and, and win with class. And uh, Canada was the best in uh, Vancouver. Did it in a very dignified and proud manner. And uh, after that, as I traveled the country, I saw our fellow citizens taking pride not only in the country, but in our history and in some of our very important institutions. Hello, I'm Wendy Mesley. There you are. A lot of people have wondered what happened to you. I could say the same about you, Maureen Holloway. Well, here we are. A few years after we left our previous jobs, we've been busy. We have a podcast. I know, you're thinking, who doesn't? But ours is really good. It's called Women of Ill Repute. We don't just talk to women, though. Just the most interesting people you'd ever want to meet. Artists, musicians, comedians, doctors. Activists, convicts, writers, sex workers. Drop some names. Jan Arden, Pamela Anderson, Bruce Coburn. Samantha Irby, Louise Penny, Marilyn Dennis, Colin Mockery. We laugh, we cry, sometimes we argue. Come and find us. Our website is womenofillrepute.com. Or try Apple, Spotify, and all the podcast places. So now you know what happened to us, Women of Ill Repute. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. You mentioned, obviously, the two prior Olympics where we didn't win gold. And now we're in 2010 and we're winning gold, the most gold you'd mentioned. But like, why what made you think that? Because I agree with you. But like, why do you think all of a sudden we had that swagger or that attitude? Is it just because we were kind of saying, yes, we're Canadian and we can win and we can win with pride? Is it was almost like because, you know, when you get blown out, like in a seven and one hockey game, you want to come back and be like, all right, that was embarrassing, but we're better than that. Do you think that was kind of the attitude? There was a, the Own the Podium program directed more money to Canadians to train. Uh, there was an attitude that, uh, and this is what I would get from talking to athletes, that uh, we're going to do our best, and our best should be good enough to win a medal on many occasions. And uh, when I say there were no gold in Montreal or Calgary, I'm not disparaging the athletes. I mean, you know, you win silver, you win bronze, you win gold. And uh, I, uh, I salute to Greg Joy with that great uh, silver medal in uh, high jumping on a Saturday afternoon at uh, the Olympic Stadium in Montreal. And, of course, uh, 
two uh, skaters that are friends of mine, Liz Manley and Brian Orser, winning uh, silver medals in uh, in figure skating in Calgary. But uh, there just was a different attitude. The team was better prepared, uh, better funded. Um, you know, training and uh, preparation is everything. The facilities in Calgary helped in many ways from the 1988 Olympics. Uh, you know, I used to hear from American athletes uh, how great it was to be able to go up and train in Calgary. And uh, uh, that's not the story so much today as the Olympic Park is uh, is uh, maybe going by the way. But uh, that was definitely a factor in Vancouver. And it was a change in attitude. And uh, it resulted in 14 gold medals. For me, for, for personal sake, it's like I don't obviously i don't have the whole background of all these olympics like from my standpoint i think 2002 was i was only like 11 years old but i remember the kind of the pass that mario lets go between his legs to go to korea in the uh, canada us game i remember Haley wickenizer having the interview i think it was with ron mcclain and don cherry about how i don't know if this was ever proven false after about how the us had taken our flag and thrown it on the floor and I was like, man, that's so passionate. Because at the time, again, I'm only 11, but I was just like, all right, so this is women's hockey. I'm kind of intrigued by it. But then all of a sudden, I'm like, who's this woman? Why? Like, what's with this passion? And then when she told me, I'm like, yeah, I think I would be probably upset if another nation <laughs> threw our flag down. But it that's my memory for 2002. But what do you remember most about Salt Lake City? Well, I remember a lot about Salt Lake City. I remember that incident with Haley. Uh, Haley's a great Canadian athlete. Uh, you know, I'm not talking male. I'm not talking female. I'm saying just great, as great as any athlete this country's uh, ever produced, male or female, in the Winter Games. And uh, the women's hockey team has so much to be proud of over the years. But uh, I, what I remember was uh, the uh, men's hockey gold because the women uh, – had won uh, had won gold before, but uh, I believe they'd won gold before. I know they uh, they they were uh, stars in Nagano. But uh, what I remember was uh, I mentioned it earlier: uh, the Edmonton Mercury's, uh, a senior men's team that won a gold medal at uh, Oslo, Norway, in 1952. There had not been another uh, uh, Canadian gold until uh, we went into Salt Lake City. Uh, 52 was a Canadian gold. 56 was the first time the Soviet Union's won gold. That was at uh, Cortino, de Cortina d'Ampezzo in northeastern Italy. And a beautiful resort. You know, it was uh, was um, re really interesting that uh, they, uh, they came back uh, and did eventually win that gold in Salt Lake City. And, uh, you know, the team, you, you had Gretzky, you had uh, all the big stars. And, uh, you know, it ties to Vancouver because Canada stopped the Americans from winning gold on American soil in Salt Lake City. In Vancouver, when Canada was trailing in that game against the United States, the question was, and it looked like it might happen, would the United States win gold and deny Canada gold on its home soil. Well, that didn't happen when the game went into overtime and uh, and Sidney Crosby scored. So uh, so many great, uh, great memories and stories, Brian, but uh, the Olympics are more than sport. And let me tell you, the Summer Olympics, because there are many more nations competing than in the winter, is the largest regularly scheduled peacetime event of any kind on Earth. And I'm not speaking like some wild-eyed jock 200 nations competing on a regular basis, uh, it's its very, very special. And, um, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I've been fortunate to do, uh, to work 14 Olympics. The first I hosted was Los Angeles in, uh, in 1984. I remember Lionel Richie performing with the pianos in that big stadium, outdoor stadium. And uh, the first one I attended uh, was when I did weightlifting in 76 in Montreal. I talked about that earlier, but... Uh, no, the Olympics are special, but uh, so's football, so's car racing. I worked with Jackie Stewart in Montreal, the great Jackie Scoot Stewart, the Wee Scoot. Brian, it's a fine day for a motor car race, and uh, he was brilliant. I worked with the great Bob Yenser, who passed away last fall, doing the Indy car races in Vancouver and Toronto. I did play-by-play -play of tennis. I hosted uh, Canadian Open Golf. I did a lot of horse racing probably 35 Queen's Plates uh, with Jim Bannon. I did something like 40, somewhere around 40. I, I think it's less than 40, but they say something like 40 Grey Cups. So, you know, I've been fortunate to, to, to do so many sports, and I haven't, uh, haven't named them all, but I've enjoyed every one I've covered. 
I want to ask you too, because I know when we were in university, for me, it was probably about like five or six years ago, and we were doing broadcasting. Obviously, being Canadian, you want to call hockey, you want to call the Raptors, maybe the Blue Jays, whatever your interest is. But like, I remember a teacher telling us, be grounded or be well-rounded in like different sports because you'll catch your break. Like, it's just kind of interesting to me because now when you said all the sports that you've covered, like, was there ever one when you were first starting off that you're like, man, I don't know a lot about this, but you were eager to learn more about it so that you could kind of master it. That's the key. You just nailed it. Doing your homework, being prepared, being prepared is everything. And uh, the late Denny Harvey was the head of CBC or CBC Sports at the time when they acquired Formula One. And he said, um, called me and said, you're going to do Formula One racing and you'll be working with Jackie Stewart. I said, I don't know anything about car racing. And he says, yes, but you're the person that will learn it and will take the time to study it and spend hour after hour after hour after hour, probably, you know, so many hours you can hardly count them watching Formula One races from around the world, watching tapes, studying. You know, it's all about being prepared and realizing you're not to be a homer. You're there to be, uh, you know, the the, uh, the eyes and uh, voice of the fan and to try and do it in a in a neutral manner. So, uh, you know, I have hockey. I, I did World Juniors. I hosted a hockey night in Canada. A game that was, I believe, the Calgary Flames and the Kings in Los Angeles. But I did a lot of World Junior tournaments. I uh, did Piastani, where uh, Don Cherry and I got in that argument. And uh, my good friend, Don Cherry, I uh, did the World Juniors um, in Alaska. I did the World Juniors when they were in Moscow, uh, hosted it from Toronto, but was in Alaska for World Juniors. So I've been fortunate to do all sports. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can pick one and say, this is what I want to do. You take the opportunities you're given, be prepared, be prepared be prepared yeah it's interesting you said that because like sometimes when you're looking at people on tv that you look up to or admire like i know watching i think it was like the 2012 i want to say 2012 uh summer olympics or could have been the winter ones from 2014 but i remember caperness or i think it was caperness or carol wagland had said that you know rod black had mentioned to them like this was their first time going over and just always saying like you can never be like too prepared for what you're doing. And I was thinking to myself, like, man, like that's crazy to know all these stats or know all like the background. But I guess it kind of helps because there are going to be points where there's going to be nations that people are like, I don't know anything about this nation. Don't know anything about this person. And that's where you got to come in and be like, here's some facts. So you get to know that person. Ryan Rod, uh, who's a good friend, uh, uh, was absolutely uh, giving great advice to uh, Kara and to uh, Kate. Let me tell you, I'm sitting in my office as, as we're doing this, and I'm looking up at the bookshelves full of Olympic books. And uh, the Olympics was an ongoing, you just didn't prepare a month ahead of the games. You prepared on a nonstop basis between games for, uh, uh, you know, for the many years I did it. And uh, there are no shortcuts to, to preparation, no shortcuts at all. And um, when I would go to an Olympics, I would learn not just the sports and not just Canada. You try to learn about as many countries as you can, but also the history of the host nation, its people, why it's the way it is today, what it had gone through in history. And um, speak of history, boy, when I uh, did the games in Athens, you talk about history there and having to learn and uh, but as I say, I was a history and poli-sci major in university. So uh, I enjoyed, I found going on the air the easiest, actually. I enjoyed the preparation. Not that I uh, that it, uh, going on the air was easy, but it was sort of like, oh, I'm here, I'm prepared, now this is going to be fun. But uh, in preparation, you're always studying and reading. And uh, I remember, and uh, listen, I don't want to go on forever uh, here with you, but I, I will tell you, how preparation comes in. It was in London in 2012 when the Canadian women's soccer team got a bit of a raw deal in the game against the United States and uh, did not win. Still hurts. Still hurts, Brian. Did, no, no, did not win the gold, <laughs> but Canada got the silver medal. Well, do you know what? I, I came on the air, and I'll, I'll never forget and um, I said, this is the first, um, I, I, I believe, or in fact, I know, 
uh, rowing teams. It's not a team sport, but you know, uh, so the, the gold medals didn't count there. But um, I came on the air and I said, let me put this uh, medal by the Canadian women into perspective. This is the first team medal for Canada since the Canadian men's basketball team won a silver medal in 1936 in Berlin. The Windsor AKO Fords, a senior men's basketball team from Windsor, Ontario, sponsored by the Ford Motor Company, uh, lost to the United States. I, I don't remember the exact score right now, but I had it with me at the time. It was something like, I don't know, 1812 or 20 to 15. The reason it was so low scoring was played outdoors. It had been raining and it was played on a converted tennis court. But this puts into perspective what the Canadian women's soccer team achieved back uh, since the men in basketball won a silver in 1936. So that's just a little tidbit you're there you have researchers with you and you say by the way what was the exact score in 36 you direct them to it but i knew that story and i've been sitting in that story for years but uh, when uh, canada won the medal in london it put into perspective uh, the accomplishment and it was the proper time to do it yeah and now especially now that they've gone on to win gold in the last yeah and it's just obviously young girls out there that watch that and maybe you know the sport of soccer gets to kind of the more kids join soccer because of that, because they see their hero or idol doing that. But like for me, I remember being glued to my seat watching that go into like penalty kicks. And I was like, I kind of really hope they win this because they deserve it. But if they lose this one, <laughs> I I will. It's like it would be like 2012 all, or yeah, 2012 all over again for me. I'm like, I'd be annoyed. But like I have no ties to this team. But I was just like, I feel annoyed for Christine St. Clair and Stephanie Lobby and like so many of them where I'm just like, this is it. This is this is your moment. You speak to the fact the Olympics have a special appeal. I used to get tons of mail, phone calls from men, from women, young women, older women, young men, older men, and they they weren't sports fans. They would say, I don't watch sports on a regular basis, but, um, you know, um, I'm glued to the Olympics day and night. And it has this appeal. I mean, we don't go to a bar, when I say we Canadians, yeah. to watch Skeleton on a Saturday afternoon. You don't? However, I always John, do. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. When John, when John Montgomery from southern Manitoba, I always kid him. I say, well, they get big mountains in Manitoba. I was born in Winnipeg, and we laugh. But when John Montgomery won the skeleton race, uh, gold medal, and walked through Whistler with that pitcher of beer to be interviewed, uh, very Canadian moment, uh, the whole country was glued to it. And Montgomery became a hero in this country and uh, became quite a television performer. So that speaks to the enormity of the Olympics and the appeal of the Olympics. Again, I would hear from people that don't watch sports on a regular basis, whether it be hockey, football, basketball, whatever, baseball, but they are glued to the Olympics, the stories. And doing the Olympics is about uh, telling stories. That's what I always tell young broadcasters. Uh, my job as host was to uh, to tell stories and to involve people. Uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force used to say, Air Force used to say, um, the late Roger Abbott used to say, hello, I'm Ryan Williams, Brian Williams' twin brother. Do you know what time it is in Japan? And, and I, I would often say, Welcome back to Japan uh, just after 2 o'clock on this Tuesday afternoon. And the reason I would do that is to involve the viewer. If you're sitting at home in Newfoundland and in Manitoba, PEI, and Ontario, wherever, and it's an evening, but it's the next day where the Olympics are taking place, then you involve the listener, you, you involve the viewer, you bring them in, you bring them in with stories and you bring them in with the setting and letting me know that letting them know you're live. And right now we're in the middle of the afternoon in the far East here. And it's the evening back home in Canada. It's just another way of uh, bringing the story to the viewer. When you're mentioning about like the kind of interesting aspect there, because when you're mentioning about the stories, like obviously you have a better memory than I do. So kudos to you, but <laughs> I'm just trying to remember who the uh, female skater was, but like her mom had died, uh, I think on the way to Vancouver and then she ends yes. up getting bronze. But I just, I was like, again, my parents love skating. My mom does. I've never really watched it, but I was like, so rooting for her to just get something because of the story. I'm like, I would understand. And I know, obviously this is like 10 or 12 years ago, things have changed, but I would completely understand if that young lady was like, you know what? This is too much. I am like, my My mom is, 
I may be 75, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not totally bonkers. Her name is Joanie Rochette. And uh, there you go. Joanie, I can remember on the air. I can remember on the air saying this Joanie earned this medal. This was not a sympathy medal. And uh, she was uh, won a medal against all odds. She was not favored to win a medal. So that's another one of those stories that are just very, uh, very special. And you have to have them in your mind and you have to be able to tell them that that's the key, telling stories. And, uh, um, you know, that's, that's one of the great appeals of the Olympics. But, uh, uh, you know, I've also been able to do uh, so many other sports that, um, you know, I, I didn't mention tonight. I can't mention them all, but uh, you have to look at every, uh, every different assignment as, as the most important and uh, be prepared. For sure. Now, we only got like maybe about five or six minutes left here. Uh, I want to ask you, like, I, I guess a few kind of personal questions, not too personal, obviously, but like, obviously, doing this for your pretty much your whole career, what are some things that you're going to miss? Because obviously, no matter what job you are, you could go in some days and be like, you know what, I hate this, I'm done. But like, there's things that you're going to miss. Brian, what are you going to miss about doing broadcasting? Well, I'll tell you what. There may have been days when I didn't feel like going to work because I wasn't 100% feeling well or something, but there was never a day in 50 years when I didn't want to go where I was going. In other words, there's a difference between, you know, not feeling maybe up to doing everything, but uh, that's very different from not wanting to go where you're going, and I always wanted to go where uh, where I was going. Uh, I just uh, uh, very fortunate to do what I enjoyed, and uh, I love live television. And uh, live is exciting and live means, uh, you know, you don't get two takes and uh, you do it once and you better do it right and you better be prepared. And I mean, to to wrap it up here, I want to ask you, because obviously there's probably going to be some uh, young journalists out there, students that listen to this episode. I feel like that's my fan base, my go to fans. (laughs) Uh, But what is like some advice that you'd give to them, especially in a world now that's changing? Because. I'll give you a bit of background. I know when we had Wendy Mesley on and Lisa Laflamme, they had always said, yes, it's a changing world. People now can go on YouTube, TikTok, and like kind of start their platforms there. But what would be advice for you to give to someone to say, if they're interested in broadcasting or journalism, like something that they should keep in mind to give them a little bit of the extra edge, I guess? By the way, speaking of the Olympics, you mentioned uh, Lisa and Wendy. Um, I worked with Lisa Laflamme in the opening ceremony in London. She was brilliant. Uh, what a great broadcaster, as is uh, is Wendy. Um, don't imitate people. Be an original. And don't be, if you're an older broadcaster, don't say, well, it's not like it didn't it used to be. <laughs> Today it's all different. Broadcasting changes as do, as do so many jobs and so many careers over time. Uh, my advice would be uh, be prepared, know what you're talking about. Don't go on and try and imitate any well-known broadcaster. Be an original. You're hired because you're, you know, Brian Tobin, you're hired because you're Joe Blow. So be Joe Blow and uh, don't try to be somebody you're not. But again, I've been saying this all, all through the uh, podcast. Uh, preparation and homework is the key. Uh, you know, uh, the great... Uh, Uh, Talk show host Larry King was asked if he was ever nervous. And he said, only when I'm not myself or when I was not myself. And I would add, I'm only not myself when I'm not prepared. But if I'm prepared, I'm not nervous because I know, you know, you know what you're talking about. You know where you're going. You know what could happen. Uh, You know, you can't predict it what will happen. I don't mean it like that, but uh, you know, if you, if you're thrown, something happens, you have to know how to react to it. Uh, the the last, I guess, question I got to ask you before we leave, because I feel like it kind of be doing a disservice to myself and other people if I don't ask it. But now that you're in retirement, what is some of the things on your bucket list that you're excited to do? And I believe one of those things is you want to go skydiving. No, I'm only kidding. I have no desire to go skydiving. And uh, I will tell you, I've been very fortunate in my career to travel the world. And uh, I've seen so much of the world. Um, I just, uh, it's, it's, it's with family. It's just, uh, you know, being at home, um, not having uh, deadlines. Uh, uh, broadcasting is a deadline-oriented business. Uh, you know, some people can have a meeting at 2, and if it starts at 2.15, that's okay. If we're doing a show and it starts at 2, 
It doesn't start at one minute after two or one minute before. It starts at two to the second. So you're not having those deadlines. I enjoy going to the gym. You want to, you know, keep in shape as as one gets older. But uh, I'm enjoying just doing a myriad of things, of uh, working in my yard. Uh, I would have trouble screwing in a light bulb, but I can tell you, I can, <laughs> I can, I can garden and do flowers. And uh, so and I'm just in, enjoying life. And uh, I love reflecting. I love talking with people I've worked with. And, uh, you know, you um, just feel very fortunate to be where I am and very fortunate to be in good health. Do uh, when you go to the gym, do people come over and ask you like, Hey, how much do you, uh, how much do you bench press? No, no, <laughs> that's, that's silly. Do that. I, go, I go to the, go to the gym. I know most people there do my own things. I'm not in big bench pressing. I'm, you know, I do uh, cardio. I do a lot of, a lot of cardio, but uh, no, they don't never ask that. You know, people we're just, uh, we're friends. That that's fair. I uh, that's my go-to where I feel like a gym impersonation is like you know you go into a gym and the first thing they ask you is like how much do you bench press? I'm like look at me. Ah, uh, that's not that's yeah. not the gym I go to or yeah. any gym I've ever been to. We oh, go that... do our own thing and mind our own business. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to do the uh, podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to do it. When I retired, I did a million um, interviews and podcasts and TV and radio, and uh, you called and you were very professional, and I thought you know what. Somebody like that wants to be in the business. I owe him an appearance on there, and if I could help his show, and I'm uh, glad to do it. But uh, no, Brian, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, you do this, and you do it well, and it's interesting. I enjoyed the questions. Uh, you were prepared. I always talked about preparations, but you were prepared and a pro and a pleasure to work with you. That's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight. Our thanks to Brian Williams for coming on to the show. Remember... You can find past, present, and future episodes on TobinTonight.com, Spotify, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob saying, thank you for listening, and good night. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.